Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Jazz Kitchen, to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. <laughs> I'm Brooke McCallum, and I'll be your host tonight. My co-stars are Sophie Fott on saxophone. Yes, give her a round of applause. And author Dan Wakefield. And tonight we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Vonnegut. Hey. Enjoy the show.
Thank you, Nick Kenny. Yeah. Well, Mark, you're a practicing pediatrician and author of two terrific memoirs, the last one called Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness, Only More So. <laughs> so I think the question weighing on the minds of all aspiring artists and writers is, is this we'd like you to answer. Did Van Gogh really have to cut off his ear to be a no. great painter? No. I think the romanticization of art and mental illness has got it 180 degrees wrong. I think Van Gogh painted to keep contact with the planet Earth, and without painting, he would have been a suicide a long time, and I don't think he actually killed himself. There's lots of historical reasons and when I look at his paintings, I say in the last part of his life, there's no way somebody who was painting that beautifully uh, would have killed themselves. They would have waited for a bad period. I mean, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like what feels bad is when you're stuck. And I think what most good art is made by people who are to some extent mentally ill, which is all of us, but they are trying to tell the truth to save their own life. And whether it's music or writing or painting, I mean, nobody goes crazy because they're an artist. If you're an artist, it helps you be well. It's funny, that romanticizing of that. You know, when I was starting out in New York in the 50s, we were literally told, if you want to be a serious writer, you have to be a serious drinker. And I was taken to the Great White Horse Tavern, and the veterans took me and showed me this is the very table where the great poet Dylan Thomas had his last drink before he was passed out and was taken across the street to St. Vincent's Hospital and died of alcoholism at age 39. I go, wow, that's great, baby. Maybe I, too, could aspire to that. You know, Faulkner, who was a uh, pretty heavy drinker himself, but he said, I've known many drunks who were good writers, but none who wrote well while drunk. <laughs> and that is a very key thing a lot of people forget. I think a lot of people, you know, even those who suffer from mental illness, like myself, but they have this belief that if they stop taking their medicines, they'll be more creative. My father was afraid to go to a psychiatrist because he thought it might make him normal. I reassured my father that they were not nearly that good. <laughs> we worried about that when I was a student at Columbia would going to a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst, would it take away your creativity? With me, going to a Freudian analyst almost killed me, but uh, that's another story. But it's amazing how reality gets twisted around to romanticize the tragic, doomed artist. I know I was a friend of a poet Anne Sexton, who I greatly admire. I love her work. People uh, actually sometimes said and sometimes wrote, oh, well, 
the being a poet is must have been what drove her crazy and drove her to a mental hospital and eventually she committed suicide and Anne said it's the poetry that keeps me alive absolutely true and I think it's true of music and painting and all of it. I mean, it's, I think one of the problems with being ill in any way is being lonely and isolated and being stuck. If you do some kind of art, you get unstuck and you give something for another person to look at. To uh, get back to my famous father, he, I think, definitely su suffered from PTSD. And he would have been just another suicide if he hadn't struggled and struggled and struggled to tell the truth. He described it as, you know, in Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five, he comes to the end of a street and he doesn't know whether to go right or left. And I think that describes my father's situation. And he decided he was going to be an artist. And um, that's what he did. And he made a lot of people less lonely. So. And he also worked constantly right. and you talked about you wrote about how you worked to perfect a joke yeah and what work that was to right. get it right i think growing up i thought he had been just sort of a lucky punk who would come up with a few good books and i you know it took a long time to realize how hard he worked and i think that's there is a lot of myth about Malcolm Laurie and Under the Volcano, that he wrote this in an absolute drunk and blacked out and stuff, complete lie. He, he sobered up to write that book. So I think there is this, um, no, it's just, it's 180 degrees wrong. Art is a way to get well and it's a way to stay well and it's a reason to be well and it's a reason to have friends and it's a reason to, you know, to be in a room like this. You know, he was so good at being in a room and speaking and speaking to people and giving really great talks. A lot of people didn't realize the work behind it. Yeah. And, the, and you, you saw it all the time. Right. And I know that, that there were times where he really struggled to make a living right. and did all kind of things like including he, he had the i think it was, he was the second person to have a saab automobile dealership in america <laughs> and that was not easy he was not good at it he yeah. was terrible yeah. <laughs> but i do think it, it's there is a similarity between how hard you work at music as well as you know there is a it, it's the same there's a rigor to it. I yeah. mean, you don't get to be able to do anything um, with good craftsmanship without putting in the time. Right. And you study the craftsman that you admire, and then you aspire to be able to create like that yourself. And I mean, some, some of us, I think like you, you know, you're raised in a household where you're seeing someone do that daily battle. And, you know, <clears throat> maybe it takes a while, but you recognize how much work it is. And then others, maybe grow up in a situation where they're breaking totally new ground. Nobody in their family has ever done something like this. Yeah. Either way, I think it takes a kind of courage. And I wonder what it was like for you to kind of realize, you know, a little bit later in life, okay, I, I want to write books. That's what my dad did. How do, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he did it very well. <laughs> 
And I think I was drawn, I think it's a sacred calling to be a musician, to be a painter. To, I mean, you take it really, really seriously. I think Anton Chekhov said, uh, a writer is not a confectioner. It's a very, very, very serious thing. And it's an honor to try. And, you know, I'm going to get to play a song with Sophie later. I'm, I'm scared to death, but I've had the... You know, I have tried to play music my whole life, and I've never given up on it. And it is, it, you know, it is a magic thing. And, and music it, won't give up on you either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, and I think having, if you try to play music, it lets you hear music. And if you try to paint, you can see paintings. And if you try to write, you can write. I hate the people who come up to me and say, well, I can't write, but I have this great idea, so you're going to write this book, and you're going to give me credit, because they think they've done the, they have the plot lined out, and I'm supposed to do the writing. And they've, done, they've done the hard part. In, in your book, you wrote... An artist is someone who isn't put off by how terrible his first tries are, who finds himself talking back and notices that he changes and grows when he makes art. And I, I think that might be the best definition of an artist that I've ever heard. Thank you. I just wanted to say, when we were talking about all the mythology about writing and, and drugs and, and alcohol, and music has, especially jazz, has that mythology. How did you deal with that or respond to that? Well, I, I think it can be challenging because being on stage, you are projecting an image. You're, you know, I, I'm not going to be the same Sophie that I am in my living room. And I think we all, you know, as performers, deal with this issue of, okay, I need to present myself in a certain way, and what image do I want to show? And especially in the jazz world, you know, among cert certain groups, yeah, drugs are a part of it, and dressing a certain way is a part of it, and unfortunately, being a red-headed white girl, I just don't <laughs> fit into any of that <laughs> at all. So, so in some ways, maybe it's easier for me, because I'm already the outlier, I think, in a lot of ways. Yes. But yeah, I would imagine that it's a struggle that probably any performer faces. How would I like to present myself in public? And how do people expect me to present myself? Because it's your natural inclination, I think, to conform to what people want from you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a woman, people want you to be sexy on stage. That's what they expect from a musical performer. Um, you know, and as, as a writer, I'm sure there are certain expectations a writer who writes about a very difficult topic, mental illness and psychosis, I'm sure people expect certain things from you that you may not want to give them. <laughs> you know, I see it in others. I, I mean, I don't consider myself famous, except in Quincy, Massachusetts, where I've taken <laughs> care of kids for so long. But I, you know, I think fame is a horrible, horrible thing to do to an artist. And I saw, you know, I sometimes think, Fame is this hairpin term that my father failed to negotiate. It was not good for him to be famous. And I think he would, I think he did get burnt out, a phrase we were talking about, trying to be Kurt Vonnegut, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a hell of a hard thing to do. It's hard to just write, but to have this, you know, this expectation. And this is great books really, I mean, with the exception of Slaughterhouse, 
Well, even that largely were written before he was famous. Right. I mean, Slaughterhouse made him famous, but right. before that, he wrote six or seven right. terrific novels. He used to complain about, well, I have all these kids around which are distracting me. And I said, <laughs> I, you know, and I went through the five-year period, and I said, uh, okay, Sirens of Titan, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, Cat's Cradle, uh, Mother Night, Slaughterhouse-Five. I think people would accept that, you know. <laughs> what, what would you have done if you weren't distracted by children? <laughs> well, we're going to take it back around to the artist. We first started talking about Vincent Van Gogh, another artist who was very much pressured to conform to what people thought he was, the crazy painter man, instead of who he wanted to be. And we're going to play a song that some of you in the room might recognize, Starry, Starry Night. Thank you. 
Sorry, night, John McLean. That, that just reminded me of how music inspires the other arts or inspires anyone. I remember when I was writing my book, New York in the 50s, I played hundreds and hundreds of times uh, Miles Davis sketches of Spain, mm -hmm. not because I was writing about Spain, because that was the music I heard in that era, what I was writing about, mm -hmm. and it would bring back the era. I could picture the street, right. I could picture looking out the window and who was there and so on and so forth. But yeah. it's, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. I think the other thing, maybe in a way, starting to write is easier than the other arts because all you need is a pencil and paper. <laughs> and, you know, you, you had to go, well, choose, tell about how you chose the saxophone. Well, I'd already been playing piano for quite some time. When I was in school, at a certain age, I guess, I think fifth grade, they came around with an instrument petting zoo, so you could try all the <laughs> instruments. And uh, <laughs> they really, really wanted me to play clarinet. I tried like trombone and trumpet and tuba, I think, and that didn't, did not work out. And so um, I, I, had, I tried the clarinet, and it was great. Uh, I could make a sound. It was a really annoying sound, like a duck call, but they, they said it was a good sign. <laughs> they said, we'd love to have you on clarinet. I was like, but what? I saw the saxophones over there. What about a saxophone? No, we, we'd really like to have you on clarinet. We need more girls on clarinet. Like, could I please try the saxophone? <laughs> and as soon as I had the chance to try it, I just felt like that was where I needed to be. And I think, you know, just beyond being a musician and finding the right instrument, I think a lot of us found our vocation or our passion because it was right for us mm -hmm. and it just resonated when we found mm -hmm. it. And I know in your memoir you talk, there's this section where you keep saying, I should have been a doctor, I should have been a doctor. <laughs> like that was just resonating inside of you. And that process of self-discovery, of finding what you should be, what you want to mm -hmm. be, I think we can all relate to that. And there is a kind of artistry to being willing to follow that inner voice, even when it's telling you something that sounds really crazy. <laughs> and it's also, uh, you know, art and music, when you are in a psychiatric hospital, it's a connection that people make with each other. There is a broken down piano in the day room, and I can span octaves and play basic rock and roll, and people just came around, and we all knew some lyrics or whatever, but there was, it held us together, mm -hmm. just sort of, you know, the music. I would and love to hear the story of your parents uh, dancing to all those different... <laughs> I feel like music can do so many funny things right. for us, but please right. share that story. So my parents, they, they went out to dinner and they were, and then they were gonna go to King's, which is this department store to buy some stuff. And there was Muzak playing and it was like a waltz. And so they started waltzing in the aisles. 
and then the music changed to a foxtrot, and they did that, and there, it was like somebody was watching them and, and kept trying to get music they couldn't dance to. And, and so my parents came back just laughing their asses off about, about dancing in the department store. I mean, but, so that kind of magic, it can't happen unless you've heard music. So as a, as a writer, how can you practice that in your craft when you don't get to see your audience's reaction to what you've written? You don't really get, an, you, you know, like in real time, I can watch people <clears throat> respond to what we're doing on stage, but you don't have that luxury. So how does that work? You have a sense and you're saying it over and over to yourself. You're not hmm. just writing a sentence and, and you get it wrong, wrong, wrong and bang, you get it right. And it is like, you know, it's like hitting the perfect note. And, and you do you know, you yeah, always you know, know what you've done. But it, it doesn't come out of outer space or whatever, it comes out of, of your experience. I've said recently that this is both encouraging and very discouraging. I think the best sentence I ever wrote was in the first article I ever published, <laughs> which was, uh, coverage of the Emmett Till murder trial. And I had to write, looking back, it was going to appear in the magazine after the trial was over and everybody knew the results. And the first sentence was, this Delta town is back to its silent, solid life that is based on cotton and the proposition that a whole race of men was created to pick it. Yeah. And that just said it. Said sad. I've never done anything better. But anyway, <laughs> but I wanted to mention that on my living room wall, uh, I have a painting that I've, I I love so much. It's a painting of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and, and it was one of the first paintings by your sister Edie. And also in the next room. I have a painting by you that I love very much. So when did you start that? Well, it's funny that, that growing up in the house, there was a competition for wall space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and Nanny is also a wonderful artist, and they both went to art school, so I can call them up and say, uh, can I put oil over acrylic? And they'll say, yes. Can you put acrylic over oil? The answer is no. But Edie got really ticked at one point, and she said, I don't mind you guys doing some art or whatever, but does it have to be painting? <laughs> she, she thought that that was her uh, thing. I mean, the whole family, you know, I think on both sides were struggling with mental illness and finding a way to survive, and the arts were a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you tell us more about some of your other relatives' efforts to? <laughs> I mean, you had a. Did you not have an aunt who was a sculptor and? Yeah, and my great grandfather. I guess he was taking inventory in uh, Vonnegut Hardware Store, and he broke down crying. And his parents said, "What's wrong?" And he said, ungratefully, "I don't want to sell nails." <laughs> and. And so at that time, you know, he went to Europe and he became a sculptor and then an architect. And so, but there was the accommodation of the idea of being an artist, even in this really dry German <laughs> merchant family. And 
there was, and Doc, who was my grandfather, um, at the end of his life, he said, and he made beautiful furniture, he painted, he designed a lot of the buildings in Indianapolis, uh, but at the end, and he was, you know, he was, he was dying of lung cancer from smoking, another thing that runs in the family. But Doc said it was enough to be a unicorn. And what he meant is it was enough to have been an artist in my own terms. And I think everybody in the family knew what he meant when he said he was a unicorn. And was it your great-grandfather who designed the Athenaeum? Yeah. Yeah. Formerly known as Deutschhaus, but it became unfashionable. Yeah. <laughs> yes, during the First World War, people splashed yellow paint on the walls. And I know Kurt wrote that his father got something in the mail saying, uh, you'd better not teach your kids Dutch. Right. And right. so Kurt felt very deprived, he mm -hmm. wrote, of, of not hearing the German heritage of mm -hmm. his family that was his. Going back to the many talents of your family, <laughs> was it hard growing up in a house where everyone was exceptionally talented but also pretty weird and different from, you know, normal human beings? They weren't that, that weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think we felt weird not because of the art. We felt weird because we were Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, the neighbors didn't know what to make of us. Um, <laughs> well, they probably equated uh, that with right. mental illness. Right, <laughs> right. See, it was another sign. Not only were artists and uh, we were Democrats, and uh, so more proof of madness. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things is I have uh, my son in a snuggly, and I'm painting while he's just wa sort of watching. You know, I think the arts have just been absolutely magic, and they've been magic for everybody in the family. And, you know, one of the things Kurt hated the most was he was in school, and he wanted to be a musician, and he claims that there was some music teacher who said, you'll never be a musician. Kurt had a very sensitive side. You couldn't tell him he had skinny legs or anything, but, <laughs> but, but he really took that to heart. And I think he, you know, and I remember I would give him my tenor saxophone and we'd all play and stuff like that. But I felt, I think he felt he would have really liked to be a musician. And the same thing, he would have really liked to be an architect and he would draw architectural drawings. And so, it all does run together, and they do feed off, off of each other. Well, <laughs> we're going to play another song in Go answer ahead. to that statement. <laughs> we're going to play another song. This one uh, was written by Charlie Parker just a couple months after he left, I guess, a, a mental hospital where he stayed in California called Camarillo, and this tune is called Relaxing at Camarillo. Thank <laughs> you. 
Mark, you were two years on the board of the Harvard Medical School. And the admissions uh, commission. The admissions. The admissions committee. commission. Right. Yes. Committee. You found that how did they feel about the arts? Well, there was I I thought it was hysterical. I thought I was like sneaking into a room and le learning the secrets of the of the Yankee uh, Brahmins, but um, <laughs> <laughs> there were two things that were, these were incredibly talented kids. You could really, by the time you got to the interview process or whatever, you literally could have made a, a brilliant class out of any of them. But we sat around discussing them each, and um, the kiss of death uh, was people would be saying, oh yeah, I had this and this, and she did this and this. And then there would be a calm voice that said, but is she right for here. <laughs> People at Harvard really do talk like that. And the other thing they would say is, yeah, this is a good application and everything, but isn't he a little thin on the extras? And now the extras are the arts. <laughs> that was the code word. And to a friend, I blew up and I said, the arts are about as extra as breathing. Because, because what good medicine does, what good you know, medical care, uh, therapy, whatever, is it makes people accessible to relationships and art. So the arts are not extra. <laughs> yeah, that's Harvard. 
Are you surrounded professionally by people who feel that art and science are in conflict? Not at the pediatric level. <laughs> no, we're a little different, you know. The, the fact is, I don't get along that well with doctors who are not pediatricians. <laughs> well, I was wondering, you know, what about the experience of practicing medicine, you know, as an art? informs your writing and just sort of the intersection of those two things that some people consider diametrically opposed. Do they work together well for you? And They do because uh, the way I practice medicine is listening. So it's not really, it's, it, and it's being, you have to listen with a special ear. You have to shut up and let the patient be the most important person in the room. And if you just keep your mouth shut, keep your mouth shut, the patient will tell you what's wrong. And I think a lot of doctors are say, well, first we have to do the co-pays, the deductible, verify your insurance, the HIPAA, the this, and it goes on and on. So the patient really doesn't get a chance to tell their story. But if you start off with just going in and shutting up, the, pa the patient will tell you the right thing. And that feels you know, it's a different kind of being creative. You shut up and let the other person tell, tell you their truth. Well, that's a huge part of making music is not playing any notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A... Don't you think that's kind of part of what being an artist is, is being quiet and being responsive to what the culture and the world is offering to you and just sort of... Right. Not exactly mirroring it back, but... Fitting it's in. A, it's, yeah, and it's a refracting of it and sort of like an externalizing yeah. of what is normally kept interior for people. Right. And, and also, the wonderful thing about the arts is that, well, I mean, it, it's different with music and painting and writing, but with writing, all you need is a pencil and paper. And uh, that's really extraordinary that you could do that, and I think Right now, a lot of people are putting a lot of carts before the horse. I mean, there's all these classes about how to get an agent and how to sell your book before you've even written a sentence. You said this, Mark, it's one of the great things is that you don't need permission to write. Right. And you don't need an agent to write. You just need a pencil and a piece of paper. And all this faldy roll and hoopla around it kind of obscures what the real practice of it is. Well, I'd like to go back to, um, you know, your first book that you wrote, The Eden Express, and that was written, how old were you, like 28, 27? Yeah, 27. 27. So this was a pretty tumultuous time in your life. How did writing that book help you? It centered me, gave me something to do. I mean, one of the things uh, that it was almost serendipitous that I, I was getting out of a psychiatric hospital without a clue about, well, you know, what do you do next? And I got a letter from my agent in New York who says, this magazine wants to buy your story. And I had almost forgotten I wrote, wrote it, but it gave me this clue ah, this is something I can do. 
I can write. And it also, it, like Dan says, all you need is a paper and pencil. And I thought it's a lot less dangerous than the other things I could be doing. And I think the, the, the neighbors were probably nervous about me. And you know, at least they said, well, he says he's writing. Well, at least there's no broken glass or screaming at night. Um, <laughs> so it is. I mean, writing is a wonderful, wonderful healing thing. I also work some with physicians' health services, where you have these doctors who have lost their licenses for one reason or another, drugs, alcohol, mental illness, and they, a lot of them want to write or see that as a, and I think that's very valuable. And I said, among the delusions you might have that are bad for you, the idea that you're writing a novel is not one of them. Well, not. All writers believe this with us, but, but we do believe that art and writing should be accessible. Right. And uh, I know you have strong feelings about that. Yeah, I think some writers think they're being, uh, if they can write stuff that's incomprehensible, that they're doing great art. I think, you know, it has to be an honest attempt to communicate, you know, rather than show off your vo vocabulary or your sentence structure or, and, uh, you know, and I think that most artists do have that drive. They want to be understood. You guys aren't trying to confuse people the way you're playing these songs, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it reminds me of what you were saying about your father being a loner and kind of expecting you to be a loner too. Mm -hmm but also having this need to connect with people. Yeah. I mean, did you see his struggle with that? Yeah, he had a horrible struggle, and he felt alone a lot. I, you know, I think it's with great difficulty that people survive something, like being a 22-year-old who has to clean out bomb shelters in, you know, in Dresden. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you come from being a, a really middle-class kid in Indianapolis, and and all of a sudden, you have all that horror. You know, he was always trying to understand himself and to help other people understand. And I think that's what art is. It's not going way out into the hinterlands and say, follow me if you can. There's another aspect of it that, that I've always been interested in in Sophie's story, that you, as a jazz musician, had the opportunity to live and work in New York, and you chose to live in a sort of farm south of Bloomington. <laughs> and uh, you want to say anything about that choice as well, an artist? Sure. I, I mean, I think from a pretty young age, I realized, you know, in my musical career, I realized that two things that I wanted to have children and that I wanted to live somewhere quiet and beautiful where I could create a little kingdom for us that would be wholesome and safe and good. And I was pretty sure that wasn't New York City. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember going there when I was 18 for the first time and I had been told, you know, oh, you're gonna be a famous jazz musician and you're gonna live in New York City and looking around and thinking, Everyone says I'm going to live here, but this doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that, you know, jazz is, is an art that you do not make by yourself. 
you have to have other people to make this music. So as far as connecting with people, you have no choice. You're forced to do so. And the bonds that <coughs> you forge with somebody that you've played music with, you could not even converse. Just play a song together, and you're friends like that. <coughs> it's weird it works that way. And you could have literally nothing else in common. Nothing. <coughs> and you're friends. And you'll remember each other 10 years later when you see each other. Hey, didn't we play Solar together? Yeah, we did. <laughs> well, you know, that that always fascinated me. And in fact, it reminds me of something Kurt told me. And I, I told Mark, I, I often, when I went back to New York from other places I was living, I'd always have lunch with Kurt. And I don't remember anything we said at lunch, but I always remember what he said on the way back from lunch. He'd be walking along, and I remember one point, and he didn't even know then I was going to come back and live here someday. But just out of the blue, he said, you know, Dan, we never had to leave Indianapolis to be writers because there are people there just as kind and just as mean, just as smart and just as dumb as any place in the world. <laughs> And I often, I often have those words echoing in my mind <laughs> through the day. It's, but I think sometimes place has to feel right for you. Yeah. And well, and I would love to bring Nick and Kenny into this because they are two amazing musicians who also chose to stay in Indiana. I mean, Kenny could go anywhere in the world and has gone pretty much everywhere in the world. And so could Nick. Um, so, like, why are we here? Why are we here? Well, I think um, from all the years playing with Sophie, Steve Ali, and the great musicians here, when I started traveling with Dee Dee Bridgewater, I had a really realization that the musicians I'd played with here prepared me for that stage. And they are fantastic and great musicians here. And when I got out there playing with all these musicians who I admired, I started realizing they were no better than the people I was playing with in Indianapolis. And uh, yeah, that's, they, they deserve to have my applause. And I also thought, you know, I went to New York early on and thought I was gonna make a career there. And it didn't feel like home. I felt like I was competing or trying to be something that I wasn't. And a long time ago, somebody told me, you had to bloom where you're planted. And so here is where I, I grew up. And I went to Attics, and I, there was a heritage and history there. And I had to learn to appreciate where I was. And instead of looking for opportunity, you had to learn how to create it. And so that's kind of why I stay here, to play with people here, the young people here. And I think anywhere you go, you make the best of where you are. It doesn't mean you can't leave, but I don't need to leave to find greatness. Greatness is already here. It's a curse. The, I think people in the arts feel they have to be world class. You know, they have to be like Coltrane, or they have to be, they have to write music as good as Billy Strayhorn, or whatever. You know, you, you have to follow your own dreams, and you do not have to line up in New York City to see where you rank among the world's greats. 
Well, I think there's there's definitely a moment when you're creating something where there's a voice deep inside of you that's speaking, and it might not even be <clears throat> your voice per se. There's 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 that spirit in all of us that wants to wants to come out, wants to speak, and I'm sure most people who create have had a moment where they were doing something and they couldn't even believe what was was happening. Like this isn't even me, but but it is. I think there's um, there's a way to tap into what binds us all together, and okay. and I think that's very close to what you're talking about. You know, when you're unwell, that's what you're searching for. Really, is that common humanity mm -hmm. inside yeah. of you that's going to speak? And what you just said was so much like I once uh, interviewed a woman who was a sculptor in San Francisco, and she said, "the the best thing that happens when you're an artist is when something is coming through you that's not you." And I knew exactly what she meant. And it's really hard to work to that point, but it can come. And uh, that's really a miracle. And yet it's a miracle we're all open to. Yeah, it's accessible to everybody. And I think it's a crime for people to believe only artists, you know, that they're a separate class of people just like the mentally ill are not a separate class of people. <laughs> we artists are just like people who don't make much art, only more so. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking to wrap it up, maybe we could play the, the song together if you'd like to share the story of where the song comes from and why you chose it. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, this was a way to say goodbye to my father. And he said that all he needed to know that there was a God was music. And he talked about the, the greatest uh, contributions uh, of America to the world culture. Uh, he picked two good ones. He picked um, jazz and Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> Very symbiotic. Um, you know, I just thought of a song, and he had—he, I think he was gypped out of being a musician. I think, you know, and it's a, a closer walk with thee, and uh, and I love the New Orleans uh, tradition of you go to the funeral playing a song slowly, and you come back up tempo. <laughs> so anyway. I swear, if I could hang out with these guys for two or three weeks, we could play them.
Mark Vonnegut, everybody, on the saxophone. Yeah. Dan Wakefield on the microphone. Kenny Phelps on the drums. Nick Tucker on the bass. We're going to open it up and jam a little bit with you guys. Everybody, thank you for coming out. <laughs> We're really glad you were here. One more time for Dan Wakefield over here on the microphone. Yeah. And Mark Vonnegut came to us tonight. Mark Vonnegut. The marvelous Kenny Phelps, who stayed where he was planted. Woohoo! <laughs> Nick Tucker on the bass. My name is Sophie Fott on the saxophone. Thank you so much for being here.